Good morning, everyone. It is great to be here again. And I know what you're all thinking right now. Not him again, but I'm, I'm back for round two. And uh, if for no other purpose, God has put me here so we would learn to appreciate our pastor even more. So, <laughs> so and I can live with that, actually. I'm, I'm happy to serve that role, Pastor. But um, certainly uh, an honor to be here. You know, as I think about standing up here before you, for me, it's just a privilege to be part of, uh, of, of this church, just knowing many of you like I do. So to be able to speak to you from this pulpit and, and just knowing all of the, the great teaching that goes, goes forth from this pulpit, it is just such a great honor. So I thank you for that. I also thank you for, uh, to everyone who has been praying for me. Thank you so much for your encouraging words. They mean a lot. And um, again, it's just an amazing thing to be able to, to bring the word. I kind of, it's funny. Truthfully, when I'm, I do this during this time when I have to prep, it's, it's a labor of joy, but also it's, it's difficult I, I'm working, I had an especially busy week this uh, past week at work, and yet really there's no greater joy in my heart just doing the preparation, and I really envy you, Pastor, you get to do that every week, and, and uh, just that joy from being in the Word daily, it's funny, I, usually when I'm driving to work, things like that, I like to turn on the radio, sometimes I listen to uh, political talk, but these past two weeks, I've really not wanted to do that because my I'm just so in a zone, and it's it's almost like that stuff pollutes my mind. I don't know. Do you understand where I'm coming from on that? So, so you just want to stay focused, and, and again, there's no greater joy in my heart than to be able to share the word with you. This past Sunday. We began looking at the doctrines of grace, and we use this short phrase from Psalm uh, 3.8 as our launching point. Here David writes, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. As we noted last week, Psalm 3 is an expression of David's lament and praise during a particularly difficult trial. David's son, Absalom, has made a serious attempt to overthrow his father's reign. And the situation has become so serious that David has had to flee for his safety. Near the end of this psalm, here in verse 8, when David writes, salvation belongs to the Lord, he is proclaiming his dependence and confidence in God. He knows that his deliverance from this trial rests not in the hands of his enemies, nor even in an in his own hands, but in the power and sovereign purposes of his Lord. Well, this is not only true in David's situation, as we talked about last week, it is true in all situations. Whether we are talking about deliverance in a temporal or deliverance in an eternal sense, salvation always belongs wholly to the Lord. And that is precisely why This is such a great launching point and illustration of the doctrines of grace and why I have chosen it as my sermon title. 
When it comes to how God exercises his grace in saving lost sinners, the church has historically held to one of two positions. Armenians and others who may not claim the name Armenian, but who are like-minded, they believe that God's grace makes salvation possible for all men, but that he leaves the ultimate decision to accept or deny this gift in the hands of the sinner. Calvinists, on the other hand, believe that God's grace makes salvation certain for those God purposes to save. It does not negate the responsibility a person has to respond in faith to the gospel, but on the basis of passages like Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. On the basis of this and other like passages, Calvinists recognize that a person's choice to believe is itself a gift. Just as David expresses when he says salvation belongs to the Lord, Calvinists understand that their deliverance from the power and consequences of sin rests not in the hands of their enemies, nor even in their own hands, but salvation rests in the sovereign will and purposes of God. And in light of this truth, and in contrast to Arminianism, the doctrines of grace affirm the biblical teachings on depravity, election, the atoning work of God, the effectual grace of God, and eternal security. And that is what we are going to talk about this morning. Now, over the years, as I have discussed the doctrines of grace with professing Christians outside the Reformed Church, besides the many struggles that, that some have with Reformed theology as far as the theology itself, and we'll talk about some of that as we go forward this morning, but aside from those things, I always hear uh, some of the same objections. Calvinism is divisive. It's a hindrance to evangelism. I've even had people essentially ask me, what's the point? What are you hoping to accomplish by teaching these things? Well, I spoke briefly about this last Sunday, but let me summarize why I think the doctrines of grace are important and why I think they need to be taught in our homes and churches. What's at stake here? What's at stake when we, when we talk about the doctrines of grace? First, I think truth is at stake, especially as it pertains to the sovereignty of God. As Christians, should we not value truth? Should we not teach truth? As I mentioned last week, whether you love the doctrines of grace or hate them, the one thing that they have going for them is they are rooted in Scripture. They are rooted in Scripture. And if God has made it a point to share these truths in his word, it is, it is obvious that he wants us to understand them. But wait, you say, you're being divisive. You're, you're driving people away from the church. Do these truths sometimes create division? Do they drive some people away from the church or at least a church like Calvary Bible Church? Maybe. 
But consider what Paul tells us in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. What is it that causes division in the church? Best I can tell, there are two uh, 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 types of things that bring division that God condemns. First, when we elevate or perhaps even canonize our preferences, and, and certainly, Pastor, you've done a great job about uh, talking about some of those as you've gone through uh, uh, Corinthians. The other thing that creates division, and that is what Paul is noting here in Romans 1, is false teaching. False teaching. When does God ever commit or ever condemn a Christian or a church for holding firm to and teaching sound doctrine? When does he do that? Never. Never. But he does condemn those who cause division by teaching lies. And he also condemned those who separate themselves because they are unwilling to accept sound teaching. Notice, for example, what Paul writes in 2 Timothy uh, 2, beginning in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. These are the very types of people who are attracted to the self-serving false teachers that Paul mentions in Romans 16. These teachers use smooth talk and flattery to tell people what they want to hear. And if they have enough charisma... If they are really good at it, they just might become the pastor of a megachurch, right? Saints, ultimately the only people who are going to wander off, the only people we are going to chase off with truth are the people who are seeking out lies. What happens when we teach and preach truth? What happens when we proclaim the word? Jesus tells us in uh, John ten twenty seven. And we looked at this verse last week. You may remember that in this passage, the Jewish leaders are trying to pin Jesus down regarding whether he is claiming to be the Messiah. But as he reminds them, he has already told them, but they did not not hear. Why not? Because they are not his sheep. Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In other words, God's people ultimately respond in faith to his words. Certainly some truths are more difficult to grasp and perhaps even accept than others. Paul even condemns the Corinthian church for their immaturity and not being able, being able to handle solid meat. But scripture never makes the case that we should refrain from teaching some of the deeper things of the faith because They create division or because they may drive people away from the church. On the other hand, 
the church is commanded to, as Paul uh, reminds us in Titus 2.1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So I say all, all that to say that truth is at stake and it's important that we proclaim these truths even when people are saying you shouldn't. Even when people are saying these things are dividing us, they're, 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 they're things that we don't really want to talk about. We don't really think these things are important. We want to stay focused on the gospel itself and, 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 and not get into all this deep theology. Well, ironically, that brings me to my second point regarding the, uh, what's at stake here. I think the gospel itself is at stake. It's funny. You know, I hear a lot of criticism from people who say that Calvinism is a barrier to the preaching of the gospel. And yet, what is the history of the gospel outside the Reformed Church? Think about that. How did Roman Catholicism handle the gospel? Or what happened to the preaching of the gospel right here in the United States during the, the so-called uh, Second Great Awakening when Finney's very, very anti-Reformed revivalism took hold? What happened to the preaching of the gospel? Talk about dividing the church. And for what? And look, I... I have no doubt that some, perhaps many, who were part of this movement and who are still influenced by it today are sincere about their desire to see people uh, come to the faith. But when you think about all the shallow, superficial, superficial conversion experience that this type of revivalism has left in its wake, uh, I may be wrong, but I think that no movement in the history of the American church has been more of a detriment to the gospel than that movement. Now, there are lots of problems with that movement. We could talk about the uh, manipulative invitations, uh, which many churches still use today, by the way. Uh, we could talk about allowing very unqualified people to serve as pastors but I think these are just symptoms of a bigger issue. When revivalism rejected or in some cases redefined the doctrines of grace, it changed the fundamental focus of the gospel itself. Suddenly evangelism became more about making converts than making disciples. Instead of a sovereign God exercising his saving grace according to his purposes, we have a disappointed God whose plan for salvation does not accomplish all that he intends and whose purposes are subordinate to the will of sinners. You get what I'm saying here? Saints, the doctrines of grace are very much alive in the gospel. So when someone rejects or diminishes them, the gospel itself is undermined. Well, third and most importantly, what's at stake here? The glory of God is at stake. I shared this quote from 
James Montgomery Boyce with you last week, but it's worth sharing again. It's just so well stated. He says that having a high view of God means something more than giving glory to God. It means giving glory to God alone. This is the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. While the former declares that God alone saves sinners, the latter gives the impression that God enables sinners to have some part in saving themselves. He goes on to say, although Arminianism is willing to give God the glory when it comes to salvation, it is unwilling to give him all the glory. It divides the glory between heaven and earth. For if what ultimately makes the difference between being saved and being lost is man's ability to choose God, then to just that extent, God is robbed of his glory. This is really the heart of the issue. I said this to you last week, and I want to say it again. We are either going to embrace a a view of saving grace that gives God all the glory, or or we are going to embrace a view of of grace that diminishes that glory and assumes some of it for ourselves, however slight and unwittingly that might be. Well, with all that said, let's look at the doctrines of grace more closely. Um, And by the way, uh, we're going to get into the good stuff today, uh, the fun stuff. As we noted last week, the doctrines of grace as they are framed are actually a counter to the five points of Arminianism that were set forth in the early 1600s document known as the Remonstrance. Uh, A few years later, Calvinist theologians from uh, all over Europe, they met at the Synod of Dort and they came together with the goal of providing biblical answers to the remonstrance. And the doctrines of grace, which are often set forth with the acronym TULIP, were the result. This acronym acronym TULIP, it stands for uh, total depravity, or some people say radical depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement or particular atonement or particular redemption. Again, for various reasons, a lot of of, uh, uh, Calvinists have redefined these terms because they think it uh, clarifies the the point uh, or makes the point a little clearer. But really, those are just semantics. Keep that in mind. So limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, last week we began looking at the the five points, and we looked at total depravity in a little bit of depth, I felt like. In brief, total depravity simply teaches us about the curse of the fall and original sin. Because of original sin, we all come to this into this world totally depraved. Now, this does not mean that we are as bad as we could be or that we do not have what we would term good qualities. But it does mean that every aspect of our being is stained by sin. Even though seemingly good qualities are affected by sin, and because of this, we are children of wrath, hopeless, uh, helplessly 
and hopelessly separated from God. And, and I think I made two points on that last week. I, um, of course, there's much more to total depravity than, than just that. And if you're not here last week, I'd just encourage you to take a look at, at last week's message. Today, we are going to focus on the other four points. And again, this is where we get into the fun stuff, the stuff that really makes people, some people's skin crawl. Starting with the you and tulip, which is unconditional election. As we've discussed many times before, when it comes to election, Arminianisms believe that God looks into the future and elects based on his foreknowledge of who will respond in faith to the gospel. A person's belief is the condition on which God counts them among the elect. Now, it is important to note here that there is really no solid biblical evidence that makes this claim. Arminians will point to Romans 8.29, where Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. But their interpretation of this text is rooted in their philosophical uh, philosophical view of how divine sovereignty and human freedom coexist. In an effort to make uh, divine sovereignty logically agree with human freedom and to shield God from accusations of evil, Arminians have adopted a view known as simple foreknowledge. Simple foreknowledge essentially teaches that God's decrees are based on his foreknowledge of the choices we make. They believe that this is true in all areas of life, especially salvation. And it is through this philosophical lens that they interpret passages such as Romans 8.29. But the emphasis of this passage isn't so much on omniscience and what God knows. It's more about foreordination and who God knows. It's about God establishing a relationship with his elect in eternity past. You know, uh, uh, I preached on the golden chain of redemption uh, about a year and a half ago. To take this passage and turn it into an Armenian proof text it's really just, are you kidding me? It's, it's nonsense. The Arminian notion that this verse teaches conditional election, it is just bad exegesis and it is not true. In contrast to the Arminian idea of conditional election, unconditional election teaches, it simply means that God chooses to save who he saves according to his purposes and not according to some foreseen action. While this is taught throughout scripture, it is probably best illustrated in Romans 9 beginning in verse 10. Here Paul writes, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, 
Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. In the ancient world, it was customary for the firstborn son to receive the birthright. Everyone knows this. Uh, It was customary for him to receive the birthright from his father. This generally meant that when the father died, the the eldest son would assume his father's responsibilities and, and authority as head of the fam, uh, as head of the family and estate. However, in the case of Jacob and Esau, God intervened so that Jacob, the younger son, received the birthright. And by the way, we we're pretty familiar with this story. It wasn't because Jacob was such a great guy. We we know how he he manipulated everything and 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 uh, essentially stole the birthright you might say but it was god's plan it was god's plan in our text here paul uses the example of how god operates in um <clears throat> the specific situation with jacob and uh, esau to illustrate how god always works in election And Paul's precise uh, point here is that election is not based on foreseen merit or any other condition on the part of its object, but election is based, as Paul so clearly states, on God's purposes alone. Our salvation rests solely on the gracious, sovereign decision of God. As I stated earlier, this does not mean that belief in the gospel is not necessary. That somehow if we are elect, we do not have to put our trust in Christ. And by the way, there are people out there in churches who believe that's what we believe. The reality is God's elect will, through the preaching of the gospel, hear the voice of Christ and they will ultimately put their trust in him and become his followers. And uh, we see this, I think this is one of the great, great, we want to call something a proof text. This is one of the great proof texts to make this point. Acts 13, 48. Um, uh, uh, when after hearing uh, the gospel preached from Paul and Barnabas, this happens. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As this verse makes clear, election is the condition for belief. It's not the other way around. Let me repeat that. Election is the condition for belief. It's not the other way around. God chooses to bestow his saving grace on some sinners and he withholds his saving grace from other sinners. Now here's where it gets interesting. When dealing with the doctrine of election, we always hear a number of objections. Some say it makes our choices artificial and in other words, Absolute sovereignty and genuine human freedom, they cannot coexist. Election turns us into puppets or robots. Another objection I often hear is that election contradicts what Scripture says about God's desire to save literally all men. 
Of course, there's something that stands out in both these objections. And please notice this. Both of these objections are philosophical. They're not exegetical. They're philosophical, not exegetical. With the first objection, they refuse to accept the paradox that exists between divine sovereignty and human freedom. And so they argue that human freedom, in order for human freedom to really exist, God's sovereignty cannot be absolute. By the way, let me say this too. Um, I was talking with, a, a, a after the sermon last week, I was talking with a brother about this. Really, we don't think about this, but Arminians make the same mistake that hyper-Calvinists make, just to the other side. Arminians are, or hyper-Calvinists, they say, well, you know, uh, if God is truly sovereign, then our choices, really, they can't be real. And, and so you take it to the nth degree where you're not even preaching the gospel anymore. You're just relying on the sovereignty of God to, to make magic happen. Well, to the other side, Arminians are making the same mistake. They're saying because we have free will, in order for that to be legitimate, then God's absolute sovereignty in the way that Calvinists understand it, it can't be real. So Arminians, we, we always talk about Arminians and, and Calvinists being you know, at opposite ends of the poles, but really we're kind of in the middle here. It's hyper-Calvinists and Ar- Arminians who are really on opposite ends of, of the same pole. Anyway, that's extra information I didn't plan to add, so take that for what it's worth. So uh, Armenians say that, that absolute sovereignty and the way Calvinists understand it can't coexist if we truly have uh, free will. Calvinists, on the other hand, believe that both exist because both are taught in Scripture. Uh, uh, John Calvin called this learned ignorance. He said, hey, you know, I may not understand how it works, but, but God does, and he's the one who's doing it, Right? We are content with that paradox. As far as the objection that God wills to save literally all men, I mean, we don't have time to get into all these proof texts as they were, but each of those verses that they use as proof texts, they have to be considered exegetically. And what we learn when we look at at many of these verses in context is that the key words like all and world and similar terms, they are defined by the context. And really more often than not, they're not referring to literally all people. And and so um, you just have to take that into consideration. And even when these texts, if they are referring to, even if they were referring to literally all people, They do not deal with the doctrine of election and they do not change the truth of God's word when it comes to election. Let me just cut to the chase here. Um, I've been involved in this debate for a long time and whatever philosophical or supposedly biblical objection a person has, almost always their real objection with this doctrine is emotional. Almost always, maybe always. I've, 
I'm, I'm giving some the benefit of the doubt, but it's an emotional argument. In their view, this doctrine is not fair. As I mentioned last week, some people get pretty worked up about it, so much so that they resort to the, the type of ad hominem and general nastiness that we often see in our politics how many of you, just for example, uh, if you've ever spoke with someone about the doctrines of grace or maybe mentioned the name Calvinism, how many people have said to you, well, you know, John Calvin was a murderer. Has anyone ever said that to you? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to get into that, but it's not true. John Calvin was not a murderer. Um, and we don't have time to go there, but trust me, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that after after the service, I'm glad to uh, tell you about that. But, but what does that matter, really? How does that affect the doctrines of grace? It doesn't. It's ad hominem. It's a way of trying to tear down a person's character to make something associated with him seem untrue. But that doesn't make it so. Let me ask you, is unconditional election really unfair? Is it unfair? Maybe it's difficult. Um, even now, as one, I love these truths, but then sometimes I, you know, it, they hurt a little bit. In order to believe that these doctrines are unfair, a person has to believe that God owes us. You understand what I'm saying here? They have to believe that God, at the very least, owes us an opportunity. But what do we learn from the doctrine of total depravity? What did we talk about last week? We learned that we are all sinners deserving of only one thing. And what is that? Hell, God's wrath. That's what we deserve. And honestly, to say that God owes us anything... uh, more than that, that comes from a very me-centered worldview. To say that God owes us a chance of salvation, it turns the biblical concept of grace on its head, doesn't it? By definition, salvation is by grace because we do not deserve it. And for those who do receive it, what do they receive? They receive mercy. Praise God for mercy. For those who do not, what do they receive? What do they receive? Justice. Justice. Here in Romans 9, Paul essentially makes the same point beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He's anticipating the same objection that people make today. I, by the way, this blows me away. When I, when I hear people making these objections and I'm looking at these words and I'm thinking, are you, how are you not making this connection? How are you not making this connection? Paul is, he's addressing the very objection that you are making. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. I like a, the O King James. God forbid. God forbid. This is the strongest uh, 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 expression of, of the negative in the Greek, you would say. By no means, God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Could the doctrine of unconditional, uh, I mean, could it be any clearer? Could it be any clearer? Well, we have to move on. Let's talk about limited atonement. The L and Tulip. Of all the five points in the doctrines of grace, this one, it may be the most controversial. And it takes us back to something we said earlier regarding the fact that Arminians believe that God's grace makes salvation possible for all men. Was it the Father's intent to send Jesus to die on the cross so that salvation would be possible for everyone? But with the possibility that his death would be effective for no one. That's ultimately the risk you run, right? That is what Arminian te- or Arminianism teaches. They teach that Christ died for all men, but that his atoning work is only effective for those who believe. In contrast, the doctrine of limited atonement teaches that God, in accordance with his purposes in election, sent Jesus to the cross to make salvation certain, absolute for his people. Again, the old Calvinists use the term limited atonement, but many Calvinists today, they prefer particular atonement. The idea is that while the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to save literally all men, it is effective for those whom God chooses to save. Christ did not die on the cross for the purposes of possibly saving all men. He died for the certainty of saving those he chooses to save. In this sense, the scope of our Lord's atoning work is limited or particular. For example, Jesus tells us in uh, Matthew 20, 28, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The many of whom are for whom Christ gave his life are who? They are the elect. This text actually takes us back to Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Jesus also talks about the limits of his atoning work in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And of course, many are familiar with Paul's words from Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What an amazing thought. In Christian marriage, when 
when husbands love their wives sacrificially, when they, when they model that sacrificial love in, 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 in their marriages, they are actually modeling the atoning work of Christ. Just, just an amazing thought. Finally, I would offer this passage from Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 10. Writer of Hebrews says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when, the, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect those who are being made holy. Now, for the sake of time, we could say a lot about this, but I'm just going to read this quote from, from James White, I think is, is a great quote in that he makes regarding Hebrews 10 uh, or or these passages here in light of limited atonement. He says, this one passage above all others to me makes the doctrine of limited atonement a must. Listening closely to what we are told, what is the effect of the one-time sacrifice of the body of uh, Jesus Christ? What does verse 10 tell us? We have been made holy. Or another translation would be, we have been sanctified. The Greek language uses the perfect tense here, indicating a past and completed action. The death of Christ actually makes us holy. Do we believe this? Did the death of Christ actually sanctify those for whom it was made, or did it simply make it possible for them to become holy? He goes on to say, the the writer of Hebrews goes on to describe uh, how this priest Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, unlike the old priests who had to keep performing sacrifices over and over and over again. His work, on the contrary, is perfect and complete. He can rest, for by his one sacrifice, he has made perfect those who are experiencing the sanctifying work of the Spirit in their life. He made them perfect, complete. The term refers to a completion, a finishing. Again, do we believe that Christ's death does this? Do we believe that Christ's death does this? I certainly do. Well, we've looked at total depravity, unconditional election, and limited atonement. Let's now look briefly at the eye and tulip, which is irresistible grace. Now, let me say at the outset that irresistible grace does not mean that people do not reject God's grace given in the offer of salvation. Clearly, people reject God's offer of salvation all the time. They reject other graces all the time. We, we come into this world rejecting the grace of God. That's in our natural state who we are. So we're not saying that God's grace is irresistible in the sense that people cannot make a a conscious or even an unintended effort to reject those blessings and gifts that God graciously offers. What we are saying is this, is that for the elect, for those God intends to save, the grace of God ultimately wins out. 
The grace of God ultimately wins out. Jesus says in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. If we go back to our discussion on total depravity, we noted that in our natural state, because sin affects every part of our being, we are wholly incapable of doing anything to merit God's favor or to remedy our negative standing before God. We cannot even understand the things of God in a way that it will, uh, would allow us to respond to the uh, gospel positively in faith. Therefore, God must intervene and provide some means that will allow the sinner to overcome his incapacities. And the doctrines of uh, irresistible grace speak to how God accomplishes this. Now, uh, let me just point out again, going back to Arminianisms, even Arminians recognize that men in their natural state do not have the capacity to accept the things of God. And because of this, they need assistance in order to understand and believe. But in order to make depravity mesh with their views on conditional election and, and unlimited atonement, they reject the idea of irresistible grace. Instead, they argue that God uh, graciously enables literally all men to believe. And this position is uh, known as provenient grace. The word provenient, it comes from the Latin word meaning to come before. And of course, even Calvinists acknowledge that God's grace is provenient and that it happens before the sinner can believe. However, in the context of this debate, Arminians take the concept much further than that. And we're not going to get into it, but but like many things that attempt to do exegetical cartwheels around something that's plainly given in Scripture, uh, exactly how provenient grace works, it gets very convoluted. Um, so much so that even Arminians do not agree amongst themselves on how provenient grace works. I think there are at least three different approaches that, that different sects of Arminians take when it comes to provenient grace. But the main thing they believe here is somehow and in some form, according to Arminians, God provides just enough grace to enable men to believe, but not so much so that he would violate their free, uh, free will to reject him if they so choose. Because, my goodness, you have to preserve that, right? In contrast to the Arminian idea of provenient grace, Scripture teaches us that God overcomes a person's spiritual deadness. How? Through regeneration. Regeneration. Ephesians 2.1, Paul writes, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Scripture also teaches us that the who, when, and where of regeneration are totally in the hands of God and carried out by his sovereign choice alone. Uh, John 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
And Jesus affirms this truth even more emphatically in John 3, 8, when he explains regeneration to Nicodemus. And he says again here in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Do you see how God is operating here? Do you see how God is operating? When we hear the word irresistible, it may conjure up the idea that the the Holy Spirit is dragging us, kicking and screaming. I don't, I don't want to follow you, God. Oh, I'm, I'm making you. My grace is irresistible. Come on. That's not how it works. In reality, through regeneration, the Holy Spirit softens our stony hearts and changes the disposition of our wills. Before, while in our spiritual deadness, we could not choose Christ. We were helpless. But after we are born again, we cannot not choose Christ. You see that? That's the idea. We come to Christ because God has already done a work of grace in our souls. Without that work, we would never have the desire or capacity to come to Christ. Well, we looked at total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace. Our final point as we examine the doctrines of grace, and this is the doctrine that provides the P and tulip is perseverance of the saints. Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, This is more than a proof text. What is it? It's a promise. It's a promise. This verse is talking about salvation. The day of the Lord is a reference to the day when all believers, the whole of God's church, will come to glorification. And, I mean, really, we do not have to get too technical to understand what this verse is telling us. If God has indeed began a good work in you, you can rest assured that he will complete it. Could it be any clearer? Of course, other passages of scripture make this point at well. And uh, we were just looking uh, at, or while examining the doctrine of irresistible grace, we looked at John 6, 37, where he says, all that the father gives me will come to me. Well, he goes on to say, in uh, the second half of John six thirty seven through verse 40, he says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. How many is he going to lose? This is an exercise in math here. How many is he going to lose? How many? Zero, right? Nothing. Again, could it be any clearer? John 10, beginning in verse 27, another passage we looked at earlier. 
My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, again, how many is he going to lose here? Zero, none. I remember a conversation I had a long time ago with a man from a Nazarene church. This is a really long time ago. Um, I do not recall exactly how it came up, but we got into a discussion about eternal security. And he made this case that salvation can be lost. Well, I challenged him using this very text here. And I will never forget uh, his reply. Here's what he said. And uh, not an exact quote, but here's the essence of what he said. That text says that no one can snatch you away. It doesn't say that you cannot snatch yourself away. All right. Am I right to look puzzled when I hear this? I remember thinking how ludicrous it was to make that argument. I mean, I know Arminians have to do something with this text, but I I really, I thought it was going to be something better than that. I really did. I remember at the time, I thought perhaps this man just doesn't know what to say, and that's what he came up with on the fly. But as years went on and I talked to more and more Arminians, I was surprised to see that a lot of Arminians make the same argument when confronted with this text. And to that, I simply say, are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Remember, the context here has to do with Jesus' claim of Messiahship. And the point he is emphasizing here in this verse is that he is the good shepherd who flawlessly watches over and protects his sheep. My goodness. What a terrible thought to think that, well, I can escape the good shepherd who's watching over me. It's just nonsense. It's nonsense. But wait, you say, what about all those people who make professions of faith and then fall away? Well, Scripture makes it clear. If they fall away and never come back, it means God never knew them in the first place. And again, we could point to other texts, but 1 John 2, uh, verse 19. Those who went out from us were never really with us. Well, there's so much more we can say about this doctrine, and I know we've, we've gone over time here, so... Let me just close with these thoughts and and saints, please listen to me and take special note of this. When it comes to answering the problem of sin and our depravity as humans, every solution offered by Arminians puts man at the center. You understand what I'm saying here? Every solution offered by Arminians puts man and what he does at the center of the solution. The atoning work of Christ only makes salvation possible if the person is willing to have his sins atoned for. God's saving grace is resistible and he would never violate our free will by drawing us irresistibly. How dare him do something like that, right? Right? 
And once we are saved, we must do all in our power to hold on to that salvation. Otherwise, we could lose it. Let me ask you, how does all that sound? Doesn't that give you a lot of comfort (laughs) to know that your salvation rests in your hands and that you can snatch yourself away from God at any time? What a comforting thought. Perhaps Armenians would not frame their beliefs in exactly that fashion, but that is the gist of how they approach God's saving work. But how can a person who believes these things ever have confidence in their salvation? You know, I may be alone here, but as one who understands and believes in the doctrines of grace, as one who understands that eternal security rests in the hands of God and not in my hands, I already struggle with confidence when it comes to my standing with God. I already struggle. I don't need these I'm just going to call them false teachings, if you will, to help contribute to that. It's difficult enough. I have to remind myself every day that, that my salvation rests not on my hands, but, but in the hands of God. And I think about people who believe these things, and I think, my, do they ever sin? <laughs> you know? How can you ever have joy in your life if you believe these things? Let's go back to where we started with David in Psalm 3 as he looks to the trial he is facing at the hands of his son, Absalom. How is it that he can be so confident? How is it that he approaches his situation with so much faith? He can approach the situation with faith and confidence because he knows that salvation belongs to the Lord. And guess what, dear saints? So can we. So can we. The doctrines of grace are not about winning a debate. Just as we see in the example of David as he proclaims these precious words, They are about truth and about keeping the focus of God's saving work on God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for um, the encouragement they bring. We thank you that we can know these truths, that we can proclaim them boldly. And Father, I pray that you would just continue to teach us, continue to, to grow us in the faith that these truths would, would uh, just take root in our thinking and, and, and the way we share the gospel and all that we are and all that we do. And we will give you the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.